This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter. Visit enterpriseinspace.org. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Human life is far too precious to risk on crazy stunts. Maybe it didn't cross that macho mind of yours, but you should have been killed when you fell off that mountain. It crossed my mind. And? And even as I fell, I knew I wouldn't die. Oh, I thought he was the only one who's immortal. Oh, no, it isn't that. I knew I wouldn't die because the two of you were with me. I do not understand. I've always known. I'll die alone. Well, uh, call the holler and have him reserve a room for you. If Mr. and me would draw us together, all that time in space and we're getting on each other's nerves, then what do we do when Shirley comes along? We spend it together. Other people have families. Other people don't, it's not us. What are you doing? I'm preparing to toast a marshmallow. Well, I'll be there. A marshmallow. Where'd you learn to do that? Before leaving the ship, I consulted the computer library to familiarize myself with the customs associated with camping out. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original series. I am Ken Tripp, along with our own Mr. Atas, Jeff Harlan, and we start this broadcast with a very heavy heart. We are recording this show on Father's Day, June 19th, and we learned today that Anton Yelchin, our beloved Ensign Chekhov, who was in the last three movies, has died in an accident earlier today. Uh, Jeff, we were talking before the show. What, what were your thoughts on, on Anton Yelchin? Uh, I was uh, in a bit of shock when I first heard the news. I mean, he's so young. He was 27. And uh, um, one of the things that I was thinking was when I went to the fan event recently, I was hoping that I'd get a chance to meet him because I was hoping the whole cast would be there. Because um, I just love what he did with the, with the character of Chekhov. He, he just did a, a spectacular job um with every role that i've seen in every one of his films and that wasn't to be they only had uh, three of the cast members there and then i got uh, the the tickets so i could go see the premiere in san diego and i was hoping well 
maybe I'll go see him at the premiere because I'm sure that he'd be at the premiere. But then this accident happened today and it's not to be. I know. I've, I've seen a lot of people posting today that they're just done with 2016. And yeah. I think for a lot of reasons, it's been it's been a very tough month across the board uh, for the country. Uh, and then and then, you know, we've lost so many of our Star Trek family and then to to lose a very young and promising actor like Anton Yelchin is it's just heartbreaking. It, it has been just a brutal year and it continues to be. And our thoughts and prayers are with uh, Mr. Yelchin's family. I, I, I agree with you, Jeff. He, he was the perfect Mr. Chekhov. The fact that uh, he was Russian made it perfect, too. His accent was great. He played off it well. And he was just a great character. And so uh, we are very saddened by today's news. And I'm so, sure that the uh, the rest of the cast is just devastated by this. I mean, just hearing uh, Chris Pine talking about uh, working with him, you know, he had a little nickname mm-hmm. for him. He called him Little Anton. And you could oh, tell yeah. that they had great affection for him. And um, it's also Zoe's held on his birthday today. So, I mean, it's doubly devastating for them. I can't imagine. It was uh, it was interesting to read over and over, and there was some, uh, from that fan event, there was a, a YouTube video with an interview with the three of them, and they were talking about how much the cast is like a family, and it reminds me of the Next Generation cast as mm-hmm. far as their chemistry, and it seems like they're all pretty pretty tightly knit across the board. It, it wasn't like the uh, the original series cast that, that had some fragmentation in it, and um, so to, to lose a kid, but especially a young kid, you know, it, it, at any time it's awful, but um, it, it, somebody like that and, and you know, we're, we're a month away from beyond, so it'll have a whole new dimension, I think, and we'll be appreciating his, his final film, I think, a lot more, and we'll be watching it a lot more closely uh, to, to celebrate Anton's life as we go through that movie. I'm hoping that uh, they add a title card like they did at the beginning of Star Trek Four, just to dedicate it to the memory of Anton Yelchin. Yes, I, I hope so too. And Star Trek tends to do that. They they did it for the Challenger in Star Trek Four. They did it in, for Gene Roddenberry in Star Trek Six, and um, I'm 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 hopeful that they will do that. And they should dedicate it to him. Obviously, he was a he was a big part of that franchise. Okay, transition to discuss more of the movies. We are walking through all the Kirk and crew movies through Star Trek Into Darkness. We covered the motion picture and the Wrath of Khan during our show where we pitted them against each other. And the last two weeks, we've covered the search for Spock and the voyage home. So we finished the the trilogy, Jeff, and now we're on to William Shatner's directorial debut, Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. So... After the enormous success of Star Trek IV, it was the largest domestic haul of the movies to date. Uh, the studio committed to Star Trek V, only this time Shatner, who, who had a re- reciprocity contract, I want to say I'm using that word correctly, uh, that uh, whatever Nimoy got to do and whatever he got paid, he got the same. So Nimoy and Shatner had been in that kind of a deal for many, many years, and Shatner wanted to direct. So he came up with I think a very familiar storyline, if you're familiar with all the different ideas that had come up for Star Trek The Motion Picture before the they settled on the V'ger story, there was one called In Thy Image, which was similar in the sense that the Star Trek team, the Enterprise crew, went up and they, they literally find God. And so for Shatner to go in this direction, I thought, thought was pretty curious. 
And I, I just just from your point of view, Jeff, from from a plotline point of view, and we'll get into like a brief synopsis. What was your initial reaction to that? Um, I thought it was an interesting idea, but that is one heck of a tricky thing to try to pull off. And I'm not entirely sure that they were able to successfully do that. And through no fault of their own. I mean, that's just something that's just incredibly uh, a tight rope to try to tread there because on the one hand, you want to try to tell a good story, but on the other hand, you've got a lot of fans you don't want to tick off. Well, there's, so yeah, there's definitely <laughs> truth in that. And I think that uh, in many ways they've, they've encountered gods, plural, uh, that didn't wind up being gods or supercomputers, or there's always something behind it. And, uh, I think even before the credits roll, you, in the beginning credits roll and, and you get an outline of what they're trying to do here, you can kind of figure it out that it's either going to be, uh, not the true God, because I, I have no idea how they could even try to ham- handle something like that. But it, it was an interesting premise. So just to kind of give us a a very brief synopsis of the film, the the crew is all on shore leave for the most part, except for Mr. Scott, who's trying to fix the Enterprise. And on the planet of galactic peace, Nimbus 3, there's a rebellion that's being led by a character named Cybok. Cybok is a revolutionary. He is a person who is a staunch believer that he has found the path to finding God, uh, Shakari, as he calls it. And he recruits many of the people on this planet, which is destitute, um, to take over a, 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 a post called Paradise City that contains a representative from the Federation, the Klingon Empire, and the Romulan Empire. And so what ensues from there is a couple of things. You've got the Klingons that dispatch a ship to rescue them, and you have the Federation that dispatches the Enterprise. The only trick in this is that the Enterprise, unfortunately, is made the butt of many, many jokes. The the, the ship is just, um, it was put together so quickly uh, that the, 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 nothing works and it becomes kind of like a doors half opening and the computers aren't working right or they try to do the captain's log and it goes bippity boppity burp and they race to nimbus 3 they can't use the transporters they they attempt to rescue the hostages they being kirk and spock and mccoy and sulu and uhura and they wind up getting captured uh the klingons show up they avert the attack from the Klingons. They get on board the Enterprise and they start zipping towards the center of the galaxy where Shakari is, is fabled to exist on the other side. Cybok is able to essentially brainwash um, the members of the crew, just like he did the villages in on Nimbus 3. He attempts to do so with the Big Three. Uh, doesn't work. They wind up breaching the Great Barrier that no ship and no no probe or anything had ever been able to get through, and it's really not uh, explained how they were able to do it, but they do it. And the they, they go to the planet, they find this uh, big wall of light that turns out to be uh, something that, that seems like God in the beginning, who wants to take the starship to be its chariot to spread its message. And that's when they start questioning, why would God need a starship? And that's when God shows his true colors. He's not really a god. He's an alien that has been imprisoned in this place for all eternity. Both Spock and McCoy are able to escape back to the Enterprise. Just as they're about to beam Kirk aboard, the 
Bird of Prey somehow gets through the Great Barrier as well, shoots the Enterprise, disables the transporter. Spock has the Klingon representative tell the captain of the Klingon Bird of Prey to stand down. They use the Klingon Bird of Prey to get down above the planet's surface, shoot God, or the bad God, or whatever he is, beam Kirk aboard, all is well, and they go beaming off back to... Uh, I guess, the next adventure. So I told you that would be a very brief synopsis because we're going to be hitting a lot of these plot points as we get through it. And having just watched the movie again yesterday, um, not a lot has changed in my opinion, but I've been doing most of the talking here. So we're going to, st- we're going to start with our discussion I- outline, Jeff. Now, the plot was a common trope in Star Trek. Could it have worked better? I think it could have with a few more rewrites. Um it was very similar to some other stories that they'd done previously in Star Trek. I mean, we got um, Who Mourns for Adonis with Apollo. Right. And that kind of implied that while this actually was the Apollo that came to Earth, he wasn't actually a god, just a really highly advanced alien. Now, this one is basically applying the same thing to what is supposedly the Judeo-Christian god, and I'm not sure if it quite had the same uh, impact that it was supposed to have. Um, I, I think um, maybe if they had, uh, you know, the the Kirk and the others who are a little more skeptical about this from the get go, you know, at when they beam down, it seems like Kirk is the only one that's asking questions and he would not be the only one asking questions. Everyone, especially Spock, would be asking questions like, how can this possibly be what we think or what we're being led to believe that it is? Um, We've also seen it in uh, the motion picture with V'ger trying to find its creator, basically its god. And we keep seeing this pattern of the supposed gods turning out to be very flawed individuals. And then here we get this supposedly a god that just turns out to be an evil rage monster. <laughs> That's right. And it, and it, it's, I, I think if we'd gotten a little more substance, a little nuance, maybe some explanation of what this character was and why it was there and what it was doing there and why it was trying to get away and why did it need a starship? Yeah, I mean, there were so many holes in in this movie. It was really tough to watch because being a big fan of the original series like we are and being a big movie fan like I was, you know, I I knew that after Star Trek IV, I was so pumped uh, to go into a different direction a little bit, get out of the trilogy, uh, really dive into something exciting and new. They had a brand new starship, right? Even though it was the old starship with an A on it, it was a brand new starship, And I was so excited to see what they were going to be able to do. And I think that there were a couple of things that they were trying to capture that they just didn't hit the mark on. One, they were really trying to hit something very big and theoretical, something cerebral, and and they weren't able to pull it off. Um, And throughout my commentary here, I want to, I guess, let the audience know that I do understand good intent. Nobody tried to make a bad movie but I could see that they were trying to reach too far with the talent that they had. And, and what I mean by that is you caught lightning in a bottle with Star Trek II, three to a degree in Star Trek IV. You just did. You had the right mix of comedy, 
the right mix of action and the right mix of, you know, very good plot ideas. In this one, it seemed like Bill Shatner was just trying to make this big. He wanted an epic movie. In reading the books about how he was making this movie, you know, the the attack on Paradise City, he had it like armies coming over like a Ben-Hur type thing and, um, you know, was just trying to pull it off and it, it, it just didn't work. So you had you had the God plot, which, which he essentially based off of, I guess, uh, watching or reading about all the evangelicals or the, not evangelicals, I'm sorry, evangelists that were running around in the 80s. There were, there were a ton of them back then. And that's what kind of got him on that thought process. Um, and then it, it, it started to drive similarly towards In Thy Image. And then they tried to bring in the comedy that they had in Star Trek IV, which was very natural, right? It was a fish-out-of-water story, so it lent itself to it. Trying to make it silly, goofy, and slapstick in their own universe turned out to be something that they just couldn't pull off, where natural humor based in a natural situation makes sense, not the slapsticky stuff, and a lot of the lines that they came up with just kind of fell flat. And I think I think the last part of it was um, the Klingons and uh, trying to pull them into the into the mix as well as another um, adversarial plot point, which they've done over and over again. So it, it was it was big in scope and just flawed in execution. I guess is how I would mm-hmm. I would rate this movie in terms of where they were trying to go with this plot. But I will say that the chemistry of the big three, especially in the beginning, seemed to work. Um, did did you capture that, Jeff? And in in kind of what I was saying, but I felt like the film failed. I don't know if you feel feel the same way. Kind of give me your thoughts on the big three, and then and then kind of, you know, what what your concept was taking the whole all those different plot lines into play. Well, my favorite parts of the movie are Kirk, Spock, and McCoy together on camping scenes, because they're playing off each other, and it is just completely natural. It's not forced at all. And you can really see these are just three friends that have been together for decades who are getting, uh, you know, getting together and just going camping. And like the jokes with Spock and his, you know, mispronunciation of uh, marshmallows right. uh, and, you know, the, the little cracks about uh, McCoy's secret ingredient in his, uh, his beans. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's just very natural. It's not forced. And it was just a lot of fun to watch. And I could watch just a lot more of that in the movie, just the three of them together and just being friends and knowing each other so well that they don't even really have to talk to each other to get through the situation. So like something's going on, they can just give each other a glance and know exactly what to do at the end of the film. And we didn't really get that. That's right. That's right. So I think there was, there was a line in there that, that made a lot of sense from, from DeForest Kelly as, as Dr. McCoy, when he says, you know, we, we, we spend all that time together in the ship and in space. And then on shore leave, what do we do? We spend it together. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that's a very common thing. And, And I know it was the same for me. It was probably very similar for you in the military that, um, you know, you had time off and you just wanted to get away from everybody, but who were you with? <laughs> Your closest friends from that unit. And uh, I've been out of the military for almost 10 years and I still 
keep in touch with them. Yeah, yeah, and and I'm the same way, and I, and I think that's a it's a very similar thing that 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 um, when you when you work in tight quarters or you you work in stressful situations or even in your own company, you know, after a while, a lot of your stronger friends come come from work, but it 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 really played off well. It kind of made me think of what was happening in the in the new beyond trailer not to go too far off off uh, topic here but it, it just it hit me when i was watching it yesterday based on what i'd seen in the trailer too that these guys are pretty tight and uh they work very closely together so in so the big three worked for you it worked for me as well uh, i think i think the first five or ten minutes of the movie were pretty good you know the the, the rock climbing thing it didn't work to me just because the the guy who was climbing the rock with a bad wig uh, was just obvious. And if you watch it in Blu-ray, you just go, yeah, okay. And then, <laughs> or the whole space. Oh, that's not that much different than <laughs> pointing out the stunt doubles on the original series no, Blu-rays. <laughs> at least they're consistent, I guess. Uh, and the space boot thing, just, just it just doesn't work. But at any rate, other than that, I thought that uh, the camping scene was pretty funny. And it, 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 was, it, was, it was well choreographed. Um, and I like that. But what were your what were your feelings about some of the 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 B plots that were running throughout this film? I felt like the introduction of the Klingons into it was pretty pointless. I mean, you could have eliminated the Klingon storyline and still not affected the movie at all. Um, it, it just didn't seem to impact on the uh, the the plot of the film. And I think that needed further work to integrate it into the rest of the story. Um, but some of the flashbacks that we saw when Cybok was trying to bring Spock and McCoy into his fold, um, that just did some amazing things for the characters and it carried over into later Star Trek, you know, the stuff with, uh, um, with Spock and his feelings of, uh, how he was, you know, just cast aside by his father, um, basically since birth. Whether or not that was factually true, that's how Spock felt, and that's what Cybok was trying to bring out. And there was hints of that from the original series, too. And I think that worked really well. And then with uh, McCoy, uh, with the revelation that uh, basically he euthanized his father only for the cure to be found shortly thereafter. And that also informs a lot of what his character is about, because in the shows and the original series and in the other films, especially in Star Trek six uh, as well. Um, when he has a patient that's dying, he does not give up until it's completely over. I mean, with, you know, Gorkin in uh, Star Trek six, we see he's got a giant hole in his chest and he's got blood all over the room. And McCoy is still trying to save his life, even if he doesn't know his anatomy. Right. And that ties right in with this where, he made his choice to give up on his father and very soon after discovered that that was the wrong choice. I think you make some great points there, Jeff. So let, let's back up a little bit. So when you said that, that the Klingons um, could have been eliminated from the movie and it would have been just fine. And, and I, I don't disagree with that comment, but I'm wondering if the thought process was to add a little bit of drama like they did in that rescue but also to make sure that they had just that right amount of action, because if it got too cerebral, they might have been nervous about making another Star Trek The Motion Picture. What are your thoughts on that? I can see that, but that ties into my uh, my comment that 
if they're going to include them, they need to find a way to make it that it's more integral to the plot. Because as it stands, basically the Klingons just chase them and don't really do much of anything in in the movie until Spock beams aboard their ship and uses their cannons. Yeah, yeah, which was a little silly. I I, I believe me, I, I I do agree with you. I I think that um, there was a little bit of a, a tad bit of of Kirk worship, you know. Where is uh, whereas if if Clock could defeat him, he would be known as the greatest warrior in the galaxy, and they kind of played on that a little bit to to kind of add that emphasis and add some some more embellishment into the Kirk legend. I could see that piece of it, and I get it. Uh, he was technically a renegade based on what was happening in Star Trek Four, so they know that the, the Klingons would be coming. Why the Romulans didn't dispatch a ship, who knows? <laughs> it was kind of like a, a an afterthought that, that just never really came came to bear, especially since they, in theory, just dropped off uh, their representative. So uh, that, I thought that was kind of interesting. So I, Yeah, this could have been really interesting if instead of the Enterprise being the only ship going to take care of this situation and then the Klingons chasing after the Enterprise, maybe have one ship from each government coming to resolve the situation, but they're all going at it in a different way, and that brings the conflict. Yeah, yeah, it, that, 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 that definitely could have worked. So. It was interesting, and then and then the other comment you made about the um, the scenes where 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 Spock and and McCoy are looking at their past, and one I, I thought they were it was a neat little vignette type of scenario that they that they that they built into that, and I thought that was very clever of William Shatner the way that was done, just like it would be done on Broadway, uh, where you know the room just just highlights. Now I'm not really sure how things are projected and how that was supposed to work. And everybody could see it, whereas everybody else, he just kind of looked into their eyes and told them to release their pain, and he captured them. But it's still made for very powerful moments, probably the best moments in the entire movie, I felt, because you, it, it was heavy, and, and, it, was, and it, mm-hmm. was done, it was done really well. But that brings up kind of another topic that, that I wanted to bring in and— um, this kind of goes to a point that's further down, so I'll go back to to another one that I had written down. But you know, when they first came out with the script, pretty much everybody gets caught into Cybok's spell, let's call it, except for Kirk in the original script. And Nimoy was not happy about that at all. Um, neither was McCoy. So they rewrote it, and um, they they were made whole. But the rest of the cast members, there's been plenty of interviews uh, when this movie tanked uh, afterwards where where they came out and said the same things that they didn't feel like they were given enough credit to be able to resist Cybok and that they would never uh, turn against their captain and you know it, it's it's one of those things where it just it just feel it just felt like you know that sometimes they try too too hard to make Kirk in this case you know this is William Shatner's version of Kirk because he wrote the story um, just just too much the hero without kind of sharing the glory for the rest of them. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, the, I s- kind of seen that in some of his other works too. It's He gets a little too invested with his own character and sometimes to the detriment of other characters. Um, in some of his novels, it's had some of the same problems. I mean, The Ashes of Eden was a, a bit of an exception to that, but some of the others, he basically turned Kirk into a superhero. And it really wasn't who Kirk was. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking of uh, the return was like that. I remember reading that, uh, and that was the only book 
that I read that he wrote because it just it just didn't make any sense. Um, just just the level of you know how great he was he was being portrayed in that, and uh, so it does give you kind of a, an insider's look as to how Shatner views the character versus how many of the um, the creatives, I guess, the people that actually did the writing for it, viewed it. And I think that when you have top directors and writers like Nicholas Meyer who can kind of harness that uh, and create that humility, it goes a long way. Because in this movie where Shatner was directing himself, I um, I honestly think that that his acting wasn't that great, and I didn't think that the acting from any of the supporting cast, it just, to me, it didn't seem like their hearts were in it. Other than, you know, that camping scene and that scene when they're in the, um, the forward observation lounge, uh, when they're looking at, at their past, I, I just felt just rewatching it like this was not, um, it was, they seemed very stale and, and very wooden, um, just not a lot of animation from any of them. And I, I did read that the supporting cast was worried about Shatner being a director but they only had very nice seems nice things to say about his directing style. We know personally they didn't like each other very much, but as far as his style, they they said he was very helpful and and very accommodating. But um, I, I don't know. Did did you see the same things I saw? Yeah, it. I just kind of chalked that up to his being a first time director. Mm-hmm. He just really wasn't as experienced in what he needed to do to bring out the best portrayal from each of the actors um you know that's kind of a skill that you just kind of have to learn and this was his first time out so he hadn't learned it yet well i I hear what you're saying there but i also think there's a there's a want and whereas leonard nimoy was very collaborative and very thoughtful of all the other actors in the cast i don't know if the same can be said for william shatner and i'll give you an example if you watch one of the um the outtakes or one of the extras that's on the on the DVD for Star Trek V, there's a scene where they're just before they film the last scene or the last day on set, they bring all this press in and they're having champagne to celebrate the last day of filming. And as Shatner is walking around introducing the castmates, he doesn't know Walter Koenig's name. <laughs> he just and Walter has to tell him his name, and you're just like, oh come on, man! You've been working with this guy for years, and uh, and you don't remember his name. And I and I took that as part of you know, even though Chekhov or Walter Koenig actually had a pretty good role uh, in this movie, you know, he he got uh, his own shining part, and you know, Uhura definitely had an interesting part, and we'll talk about that in a minute. I I don't think that he was purposely trying to leave them out, but I think at the same time it was more like. Oh yeah, I, I need to do this. Check the box and move on. That's that's kind of how I read it. But um, uh, let's let's now switch it back a little bit since I I opened the door a little bit to the to the supporting cast. What were your opinions of of some of the key moments that Sulu, Chekhov, Hura, and uh, Scotty had? And then um, I think we could have some good discussion on on what they did with Nichelle Nichols's character. I thought it uh, was a little, while it was funny, it was also a little out of character for Chekhov and Sulu to be uh, shown to be lost in the woods when these guys are the navigator and helmsman on a starship. Sure. I mean, it's it's like, you'd think that these guys would know some basic land nav. <laughs> you'd think, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
they really didn't seem to have a whole lot to do other than that. Um, you know, you got to, um, Chekhov gets his moment where he's taking over as acting captain while the other senior staff members are all off on the shuttlecraft. Right. And that was, that, that was neat to see. It was nice to see him taking more of a command role. Um, finally, um, I mean, he'd been the executive officer on the, uh, the Reliance. So clearly he had to have some experience in that field. Right. Um, and you know, then there's, there's uh, Nichelle Nichols's scenes, um, her sudden love for Scotty coming out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That made no <laughs> um, sense. Even for Scotty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, um, that, that was a little weird. And then the, uh, um, the, the fan dance scene, <laughs> which was also a little odd. Um, those were parts that uh, I, I just didn't feel like they quite fit and they didn't quite work for me. Uh, I'm with you. I thought, you know, I've met Nichelle Nichols a few times and I, and, and last time I met her was like three years ago. What a handsome and graceful, beautiful woman she is. And mm-hmm. I don't remember her saying anything bad about having to do that scene or whatnot, but um, I, I just was like, when you say you can do without certain things, they could definitely do without certain things. If if they wanted to let her sing in order to attract the um, the patrol, I, I think just hearing a woman's voice, and uh, I guess they were lucky that it was just an all-male patrol, I suppose. Maybe there's no women other than the cat woman there on... Uh, on Nimbus three, but at any rate, uh, if they had just used her voice like a siren song to attract them to 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 really highlight her singing, and and she can, <laughs> she's a wonderful singer. Uh, I think that would have been nice to to do the rest. And I don't know if if she was nude or implied to be nude. It's it's kind of a weird scene. Um, but it certainly seemed to be implied that she was. Yeah, yeah. It certainly. I mean, just the lighting of it looked like you know, she was. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, it, it just seemed, um, way, way, way over the top. And like I said, I, I give her a lot of credit for wanting to do it and, and taking the screen time. Cause I'm sure she could have balked if, if it was something she really felt strongly about, but boy, it just, it just didn't, I, I, I guess watching it, I felt embarrassed for her. I don't even know how to say it, you know, mm-hmm. because you know, I, I think uh, regardless of age and time or whatever, you know, you, you can, you, her, her looks weren't the question. It was just more of, of a respect thing. And um, yeah, it just bugged me just, just on, on, on that level. So, yeah, I was like 12, 13 when I first saw this movie and I felt the same way. I was like, I don't know about this scene. You know, it just doesn't seem right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it didn't play. And then, like you said, all of a sudden she's falling for Scotty, who... Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean... Um, There's never been anything implied between between the two of them ever before. No, not not, not ever. Um, and, and, you know, I, <laughs> I don't want to get into the semantics on age differences and who's attracted to whom because... That that doesn't really come into play. I don't, you know, I don't judge it's myself, like but I just felt like that. Main... That was a chemistry <laughs> you never saw before, and it just didn't make any yeah. sense. And uh, the only other character in the main cast that she was ever shown to be flirting or any kind of attracted with before was Spock right. in the first season. That's right. 
Yeah. And that didn't really play out until 2009. No, it, it, it didn't play out at all until 2009. So that, that was kind of odd. And then, uh, you know, Sulu, he didn't have a ton to do, but he was he was um, the pilot that, 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 that figured out how to, I guess, how to implement uh, emergency landing plan B. And uh, he was, you know, part of the party that was shooting him up, I guess, down in Paradise City. And then after that, that was it for him. And then you had Scotty again, who who played a pivotal role, I think. I mean, it looked like they were going to have a lot of fun with him. He was fixing all these things and running around and trying to get the, the, the transporters fixed. And he breaks them out of prison, which, you know, there's, like I said, there's so many holes in this movie. I could spend hours just nitpicking on things. But as soon as they landed in the shuttle bay, why didn't he just secure the shuttle bay? <laughs> you know, so mm-hmm. nobody has to go to the brig. I mean, he's watching all this from above and does nothing. He couldn't gas him. Yeah. He couldn't do something. It was just, it, like I said, it, it wasn't well thought out. And then instead of just walking into the unguarded brig and unlocking the um, the mechanisms that would have allowed the force field to drop, he blows them out. It, it just oh, it drove me crazy. But, you know, also with Mr. Scott um, whacking his head on the bulkhead, I remember thinking it was funny the first time I saw it, and then afterwards going, no, it really isn't that funny. And then how did they ever get him to, to sickbay, Jeff? So they, they had John, remember the, the skinny guy played by Rex Harrison, like, take care of Mr. Scott. Do you think he could have carried a 300-pound Mr. Scott to sickbay out, um, out of a maintenance shaft? It was just, I mean, the, little things like that just just drove me crazy about this movie because... They really just take advantage of the audience, I think, a lot. And, you know, the Star Trek audience, and I'm one of them, we're a pretty meticulous bunch. We like to see things make sense, and we like to see things flow. And, well, I'm sure there wasn't a lot of people that that were criticizing it the way I am. All these things come together, and it just drives me crazy. You? Yeah, when I saw that bit with the shuttle bay scene, first thing I thought was he's watching all these people with guns coming out of the shuttle flip a switch and lock the doors. Yeah. Yeah. And if they're not cooperating, start lowering the atmosphere. <laughs> yeah. We we know the Enterprise can flood uh, compartments with gas, right, to mm-hmm. uh, to repel borders. Uh, again, even if it couldn't, he, he could have secured the bay. It was just... They didn't even need to do that. They can just uh, reduce the oxygen levels until everyone's knocked out. Sure, sure. Absolutely. That's what I'm saying. There's 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 a lot to yeah. that. Yeah. There there were so many different ways that that could have been handled before they took over the ship. Mhm. Okay. So let's let's get into uh, another part. I, and I do want to say that um this is this is an interesting section. So Lawrence Luckenbull, he he portrayed Cybok. In your opinion, Jeff, how did he do within his own merits and did the character work whether or not it was Spock's half brother or should it have been? That, that that really isn't the question. But what did you think of his his performance. I thought that it was a very interesting take on Vulcans because we'd always seen Vulcans through the prism of Spock and logical all the time to a fault. And then we get a Vulcan who says, you know what? To heck with logic. Uh, It doesn't work for me. And I thought that was a very interesting take on that. And it also makes sense that he would be you know, shunned by Vulcan society if he is flying in the face of what pretty much all the other Vulcans we've ever seen has stood for. Um, I thought that worked and it was very interesting. And that would also potentially lead him to do things 
that would we would otherwise think are very un-Vulcan, uh, the violence um, and the fanaticism that uh, um, in his leading a cult, basically. Mm-hmm. And the the whole thing with his putting people under their spells, uh, you know, that, that worked for me too, because, you know, Vulcans have telepathic powers. And how much of that was him, you know, just relieving them of their pain and how much of it was him just, you know, pushing them to be more uh, susceptible to whatever he says to, for them to do. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's, it's just like you see with a lot of the um, evangelists back in the day. Um, You know, there was, there was a formula that between, between music and atmosphere and moods and all these other things, you can almost be kind of lulled into a certain thinking and then, you know, it, it sparks this big, um, this big reaction when they come on and they lay hands and all that stuff and people pass out and so forth. Um, you know, I, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I just say there's, there's a lot there. And that was the basis for what William Shatner was, was, came up with the character for. But getting back to Lawrence Luckenbill himself, I thought acting-wise, performance-wise, his performance was the best of them all in the movie. Mm-hmm. He carried it well. He was... He was very believable. Now, in 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 Leonard Nimoy's book, his latest one before he passed, they're called "I Am Spock." I think it's probably still ten or twelve years old. Uh, great book. And when you read about Star Trek V and the making of it, one of the things he says is that uh, the the reason it failed was very simple. William Shatner was writing a very bad script. Doesn't mean bad intent, bad bad you know bad intent, but it was just a bad script. And I could see Lawrence Luckenbull in the lines that he was delivering, trying to get everything out of it as much as he could, because there wasn't a lot of meat or substance in what he was saying, but you could tell by his, his expressions that, that he believed in it. And the whole time he, he just, he, he was probably the one character in the movie that just to me didn't seem wouldn't it didn't seem wooden, excuse me, that seemed very, very authentic. So I, I thought he did a, a great job working with a character that, that is very difficult in a movie that's, that's, that's hard to portray. And I, I, I really think uh, he did a good job. But what was your, what was your thought on the fact that they, they created him as another, another brother of Spock? Well, considering how long Vulcans live, um, I didn't really have a problem with it. I mean, they said that Vulcans have to mate every seven years and that they're bonded to another Vulcan at childhood. So that meant that at some point, Sarek was also bonded to another Vulcan. So when he went upon far and had to mate for the first time, it probably was not with Amanda. And that probably came later in his life. Because they'd established in Journey to Babel, he was already 100 years old. Mm -hmm. And that's quite a lot of lifespan that he had long before Spock was born. Um, So that's plenty of room for him to have had other children. Sure, sure, absolutely. But it is definitely um, called out in the movie itself that at some point they knew each other and and lived together. I mean, it Mm -hmm. seemed to be that, you're right, Cybok was the older brother. Mm -hmm. That much was clear. And that, um, you know, he, he went in a different, in a different route, but he, him and, he and Spock knew each other very well. And 
I guess the only the only thing is when these when these things pop up in the movies like this, when you have such a history, um, and you have such closeness of friends, or you go through what they just did with with Spock as far as death and resurrection and understanding all these things about him, um, that this type of information would would be known. So it was an interesting plot device, uh, and, mm-hmm. and you're right; it definitely could happen. I guess I just had a tough time kind of kind of swallowing that. Um, you know the, these these things aren't aren't known beforehand. You know mm-hmm. things are often well, forgotten in movies. Not saw, a lot of things added. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Yeah, the only other time that we saw Spock as a child, he was already uh, about seven years old mm-hmm. in the animated series. Right. And clearly, the animated series played a factor in this because we had Cations in this movie. Um, and when we saw Spock as a child, you know he's older. Cybok is not around, but maybe at that point, Cybok is already an adult. Could be. And he had gone off on his own way when Spock was still like four or five years old. Mm-hmm. No, no, definitely. I just, um, you know, I, I just think somebody like, like William Shatner and um, was, it, was it David Lowry, I believe, that wrote the script for this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just don't know how much due diligence they do. I know they have consultants. Uh, mm-hmm. but I, I think a lot of it is that, you know, they come up with a plot point and they just go with it. I don't know how, how married they are to Canon because those were interesting times. Um, you know, Gene Roddenberry was the executive consultant, but it sounded like there wasn't a lot of, um, good relationships between him and Harv Bennett. And I have no idea if, you know, it's, it seemed like Kirk and Roddenberry were estranged even at the end. You know, there was, there was a mm-hmm. lot of, um, animosity I, I don't know what drove it all I, you know there's there's a lot of books and, and different books have different sides so I don't take one I just uh, I just I just wonder if if the people that were making the movies at that time were as married to the past as as others and they just came up with something they thought would be a good plot point rather than trying to shoehorn it into something like like you're trying to do on Trekopedia because we want it all to mm-hmm. mesh we want it all to make sense yeah. and we're trying to figure it out you know Yeah, I do know that uh, towards the end, pretty much everyone was uh, not get along with uh, Roddenberry. Mm. Okay, so let's let's move to the to the biggest element in the room. I think with this with this movie, at least it was in my opinion, the special effects in this movie were horrible. Um, uh, ILM was booked at the time making several movies, and they couldn't squeeze in or they they couldn't match Star Trek fives schedule so Shatner goes out and he finds this guy Brand Farron I believe his name is who uh, was a commercial maker essentially he didn't have a lot of experience in, in big time special effects and he's the one who who they hired I remember being at a convention in Maine with James Doohan they were in production of this movie Doohan had flown out to the convention and one of the questions was is ILM doing the special effects and his response was very dismissive. He's like, nah, it's somebody that Shatner knows <laughs> or something like that. And boy, the, you know, special effects and bad special effects in Star Trek went hand in hand in the 1960s, you know, but in the 1960s, those weren't bad special effects. They were just the best yeah. they could do at the time. And you had world-class special effects in the motion picture. You had very good special effects in two, three, and four. And then Star Trek V comes along, and it's like something from, oh, I don't know, 1974. I mean, they couldn't make anything work. 
what, what were your kind of the key frustrating moments for you or some of the things that you saw that just drove you crazy about that? Well, the first many times that I saw this, mm -hmm. I never saw it in the theater. I, I saw it on video. Right. So I didn't notice the effects as much on the smaller screen. It wasn't until much later when I got the uh, Blu-rays and I had a, a better TV to watch them on that I noticed. And I was struck by just how plastic everything looked. Yeah. Um, you know, the, all the, uh, the, the effects of like the, the great barrier and everything that just, and the energy shots from like the phasers and the, you know, the Klingon disruptors just seemed washed out and not quite real. Um, but the, the first many times that I saw this probably for like the first, uh, 10, 15 years that I had watched this movie, I never really noticed because I was watching it on a much smaller screen with a VHS tape. Huh, that's interesting. I guess because I saw it on the big screen in 89 when it came out and I was so disheartened. You know, the very first scene where they're, 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 they're showing the space dock and all that stuff was all from mm -hmm. Star Trek Four. So, so none of it, you know, there was no signs that it was going to get bad. And then when they're mm -hmm. flying from the campground to the, to the ship, and at first it's like, oh, that's kind of neat. It's reflective in the moon and all that stuff. That looks kind of cool. But then when the shuttle lands, it literally looks like somebody, you know, pulling the shuttle in with a stick <laughs> or wire. <laughs> and it literally plops down. And it looked horrible. And I went, are you kidding me? I mean, this is bad. Because the set itself, the shuttle set... I thought was great. They did a nice job on the internal set for the movie, but then the special effects just didn't play. And then the, the the first battle scene when the ship goes into warp, I was like, "This is, this is getting scary bad." And then you're right when they get to the Great Barrier, forget it. I mean, it it, it just it, it was horrible. And then the the when when the bird of prey hits the Enterprise or hits it with a torpedo. Um, you can see like there's a corner of the ship that's just cut out of the frame. It's just a blatant miss of, um, of bad projection. And, and it just looks horrible. And you're sitting there going, are you kidding me? Even the shot of the torpedo going down to the God planet um, was, was horrible. I mean, the lighting, it, it looks, it pulls you right out of the movie and and it's such a shame because if they were allowed to go back and CGI this a little bit, it could be that much of a better movie because it just adds to the fact that on every level, this movie just fails. And mm -hmm. it, it drives me crazy when you're going to spend that kind of money. Now, again, nobody sets out to make a bad movie. Um, you, you know, I'm sure in work, You've worked hard on something and you think it's good. I know I've done this with presentations. I'm famous for how horrible my presentation slides are, not my presentations. So I always have people to help me out. And you look at the finished product and you go, ooh, geez, that just does not look the way I thought it was going to look. I can only imagine when they were screening this movie before it's released with the executives and everybody else were just cringing while William Shatner, I'm guessing, is watching this thinking, boy, I hope they don't notice. I hope they don't notice. Kind of like Jeff on the VHS. <laughs> well, if you showed him a VHS screener, then uh, maybe. Because <laughs> yeah, 
you know, something about uh, the the lower uh, uh, frame quality of uh, the VHS tapes. I just didn't notice it as much. Yeah. Well, maybe. And I watched it over and over and over and over when I finally got to see it. Mm. Well, I know that they they were trying to add a lot of effects to it in the God effects. I mean, you, you just kind of see this floating head shooting laser beams out of his eyes and hitting rocks, but there's no damage to the rocks and. You know, I, I would say that when, when Kirk is standing at the end and he's looking up at the at the bird of prey, that looked kind of cool. But then you're right, you kind of have that weird stop motion feel, plasticky feel of the gun, mm-hmm. you know, shooting, um, I guess... I guess I guess a photon torpedo doesn't kill him, but Klingon phasers do. I, I don't know. It, it's it's odd, but at any rate, it's uh, it's a shame that, uh, from what I understand, they wanted to go back a few times and redo it in in time. But uh, I, I just don't think that uh, Paramount sees the juice is worth the squeeze that they'll never get the money back that they invest in it. One. And then, too, there were a lot of things that they did want to add into this movie. I don't know. Did you ever see the test of the rock monster? Because in, yes, I did. did. So in the original... Yeah. In the original and I read about it in uh, um, the, the book that uh, Shatner's daughter wrote. Yeah, they, they wanted to have like an army of these things, like they kind mm-hmm. of jumping out of the river sticks type stuff, right? If I remember, that's how they quoted it. Yeah. And had these rock monsters. What, what was your... Did, do you know the story behind that? Um, a little bit of it, uh, mostly just for what I read in the book mm-hmm. that she wrote, basically just that like at the end, there was going to be this big, you know, army of these rock monster people mm-hmm. coming after them and they're trying to get away from them. And, um, that, you know, that was where the big save happens, where these things get blown up by the, uh, the bird of prey coming in and blowing these things up. Yeah. So if you, if you saw the Savage Curtain. It gives you kind of an idea of what that rock monster looked like. Very similar. Mm-hmm. I, I saw the test for the rock monster, and uh, it was a little bit like the uh, um, the suit that they ended up making for uh, the thing for the Fantastic Four movies. Also, yeah, yeah, that that's true. It had steam coming out of it. Um, mm-hmm. it, it it you know it kind of thumbled around. Now they they were going to to make quite a few of these things, and then mm-hmm. the. The budget was being run up, and then they 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 wound yeah. up saying you could have one, but then when they did the test for it, it just didn't work at all, and they wound up just um, substituting in, like I said, the floating godhead that was that was chasing Kirk around, and uh, it, you know this is this is one of the things where I really feel bad for for William Shatner and the team again. I, I see in his head what he was trying to do, and I think we can all relate to the to the William Shatners of the world, the ones that really think big. And, you know, there's there are people out there like the Steven Spielbergs that very rarely miss. They have that right um, ability to, in order to figure it out. Uh, but I'm sure whether you're Steven Spielberg or, or any big director, you know, you have to start out uh, in scale and, and get bigger as you go. And I think that William Shatner, who, you know, he had directed a bunch of episodes of T.J. Hooker. So he, he had directed things before, just never at this scale. He wanted to do something really big and epic. Uh, we joked about the um, the 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 movie posters uh, that were coming out prior. Uh, Jeff, do you want to, you want to hit on that again? Yeah, the the movie poster saying this is why they put seat belts in the theater. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and um, 
And, and so you know, yeah, apparently it was to keep you from leaving. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we were saying during the trailers. Yes, it was a trick, but it really it it, it he even if you look at the movie poster, you see you know tons and tons of horses charging into um, into Paradise City. He wanted to make something so big and so epic, and you know he tried. And again, good intent, but boy, on every level, it just fell flat. So. Um, Okay, that's enough talking about the special effects, and I guess we're grading this as we go. So the last thing we wanted to talk about a little bit was was the reviews and the financials and kind of the after effect of this movie. So, you know, uh, when Star Trek V uh, came out, it was the, the next generation had been on for, for two years at this point. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was coming in after the success of Star Trek IV. So you could say that the success of Star Trek IV launched Star Trek V as well as The Next Generation, because if it didn't do well, I don't think there would have been an appetite for it. Um, and this that kind of sealed it for them. But but the reviews and, and the financial hit that they took, it, it did make money. I believe it was a 30 to $35 million budgeted film, but it made the, the lowest amount of money of all the Star Treks, and by a wide margin, when you consider that... Um, that Star Trek Four brought in close to 125 million dollars, and Star Trek Five brought in 54 million. That's that's a huge swing the other way, and there was a lot of discussion at the time as to why you know the movie didn't sell well, and a lot of people just wouldn't say because it was a bad movie because it was a bad movie. Um, I remember Harv Bennett talking to the fact that you had the TV show on now and and it kind of diluted it and so forth. And, uh, I don't think that was the case, but what was, what was some of the things you remember, um, Jeff, or some of the things you read about the fallout of Star Trek five? Um, mostly it's just, uh, a lot of negative feedback on this thing. Uh, um, it ends up where, you know, people talk about the Star Trek movies. They keep talking about how this is, you know, the worst one of the bunch, or at least for the original series. And, while that may or may not be the case, you know, considering the company that it's in, that's still, you know, it could be a, still be a good movie, but not be as good as the other movies. Um, so it's kind of a um, hard uh, benchmark for it to meet. It is a hard benchmark. And, and I do hear a lot of people make the statement that, uh, you know, as they watch the movie as years go by and time goes by, they appreciate appreciate what you appreciate. What we what we both, I guess, appreciate was the camping scenes, and mm-hmm. and some of the chemistry amongst the big three. But then, you know, you, you take that out of it, and those scenes in the um, in the forward observation lounge, and and I just don't. I, I it just felt like the the air was let out of the room. It it really was a huge letdown. Now, if you if you remember that timeline too, there was the the. The old cast, the original series cast, they weren't they they weren't cheering for the next generation at all, right? Um, you know, they 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 felt that they were playing in their territory, um, that they couldn't catch lightning in a bottle. All that changed years later. There's no doubt it changed, but at that time, that was the premise, and the next generation was just so so. I mean, the first two seasons weren't weren't great, and so there were a lot of original fan st- uh, series fans like me who'd seen every single movie up to that time, who was, at that point, I was a zealot uh, for the original series. And I felt so let down by this movie because it was just that bad. Um, 
that's when you you take the blinders off a little bit and you see a couple of things. Um, you see good intent, you see the effort, but you also see that without the right direction and with the age of these characters, um, they really needed that good direction because the acting abilities and skill sets were just not that solid by many of the cast members, including William Shatner. I, I, I really felt like he, ma- he, he just mailed it in. And that could be because he was being so deluded um, in trying to direct it. Again, good intent and he was trying. It just didn't work. And I think that um, the biggest thing that came after that, Jeff, at the time was, are they going to allow them to go out with any grace? Because when that movie sunk, the scuttlebutt was, that's it. We're not making another one. And that's when the rumors that started to fly. That was the case, too. Right? And that's when um, Harv Bennett started working on that Academy script. You familiar with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and that very nearly was the case that that was the last movie. Yeah, I, I think... Um, the- it, it was just a, a confluence of things that ended up letting them make one last movie for the 25th anniversary. Yes, I think the um, the fans had a big piece of it, but also I think one of the... I think it's ironic, but if Star Trek V had been really good, that still might have been the last movie because they would have felt like they went out on top because it's, it's tough. Mm-hmm. I mean... If you look at, at at the condition James Doohan is in from Star Trek Two on, it's rough. The poor guy. Even in Relics, he was struggling. He he, you know, I love James Doohan and I love Scotty, and I almost there were just so many times I was like, he just he just can't act anymore. You know, he, he's just really having trouble. Trouble. Um, it wasn't reading the lines or so forth. It was the way he said things, and you can just tell is sometimes when people get older, it's a struggle for them. Uh, so he was struggling hard in Star Trek V, um, and and some of the some of the uh, it just seemed like you you could really see it when they were in those um, those combat uniforms that they were wearing to rescue the hostages. You know they, they just weren't flattering at all, and and they were they were designed for soldiers um, or mm-hmm. Marines or somebody in really good shape, and instead it kind of showed more the fact that these guys were getting older and. We love these guys. We love these characters. We always want to see them in their best. And as much as I liked those uniforms by, you know, the design and what they were meant to do, it didn't work for them. And they weren't thinking of, of you know, the egos were getting carried away a little bit in, in their appearance, other than Dee Kelly and, and George Takai, of course, who looked great. Uh, but it, it's, it's just one of those things I struggled with. I don't know. It was, it was a tough movie for me, Jeff, as you can tell. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll ask you, what are your final thoughts? Give it, wrap it all in a, in a bow for me from your perspective. Well, like I was saying, um, the first time I saw this was not in the theaters. Um, because at the time I was living in Germany, um, military brat over there and I didn't get the chance to see this in the theater when it came out uh, for a variety of reasons. I don't remember exactly what, um, but I, um, finally got to see it when it came out on video and it was when the Gulf War was starting to ramp up and we had all the soldiers going over and they were passing through the tent city in Germany uh, on their way over and I uh, uh, was actually volunteering in the tent city mm-hmm. um, every weekend I would I would volunteer my time to you know like restock the snacks and the movies and the uh, uh, magazines and stuff to keep things there for, and games for, for all of them as they were passing through. I was in 
I was, like I said, I was about 12, 13 years old. So I was in middle school at this time. And so I'd spend my weekends just doing that. Um, instead of whatever else I wanted to do, I'd just go and uh, do this just to, for all the guys that were passing through, uh, on their way to the, to the, to the Gulf to, you know, go fight in the war that we all knew was coming. Mm -hmm. And, um, one of the movies that they happened to have in the library for all the people to watch there was Star Trek V. So in the downtime in between loads of airplanes dropping guys off and taking off and taking them on their way, I'd pop this movie in and I would watch it repeatedly. Um, partly because it was one of only like about two Star Trek movies that they had in the library there, but also because it was the new one and I really hadn't seen much of it before. So I probably watched this a good, you know, 30, 40 times over the course of a couple of months. Um, and I enjoyed it a lot when I watched it. Um, but like I said, it was on a TV, it was off of VHS tape. So I didn't really notice a lot of the problems with the special effects or some of the other things that other people had problems with uh, when they saw it in the theaters. Um, but I loved the interaction of the big three. Um, I, uh, I I enjoyed the plot. You know, I, it uh, it was fun to watch for the most part. And there were just a few things where I was like, well, that doesn't quite work. But whatever, I'll just keep watching. Yeah. I think the thing is back then for you know you know looking at through the lens of a thirteen year old or fourteen year old. Um, it's a little bit different than, not that I was way older, um, but at that point I had been in and out of the military in college, uh, just got married, and, you know, I, I literally got off um, a plane from my honeymoon in Bermuda, and we went to uh, to see this movie, you know, like the next day, and it, it had come out while we were out, and I was really looking forward to it, and you just want, because it's it's what you love so much, and you love these characters, and you love everything about the original the original series which is why I'm on this show you just want it to be so successful and i think that's what made the fall all that much harder for me now i've heard a lot of people say what you say and every opinion is valid and you know i i, I used to get beaten up a lot because of my love for star trek the motion picture <laughs> and, uh, and that's fine and you know what's ironic was i was about the same age you were when I watched Star Trek The Motion Picture as you were watching Star Trek V, and I just love that movie. And if you can watch something 30 or 40 times and, and you're picking up all the good things, I think that's wonderful. And, and watching it again yesterday, there were more parts of it that I realized I liked than I didn't. Uh, it's just that also as you compare it, I think as you get older and you've watched all the other Star Trek films, and of course, even with the J.J. Uh, J. Abrams films nowadays, um, just the level of um, of acting ability and so forth was, it, for whatever reason, Star Trek V just really struggled. But um, like I said, it was a valiant attempt. Uh, they got to redeem themselves, as we'll be talking about, in my opinion, in Star Trek VI. But, you know, for all of you people that really like Star Trek V, I, 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 Jeff and I and Norm, we'd love to hear your thoughts on the movie you know, what worked, what didn't work for you. I know I've been a pretty harsh critic of it, but I will tell you this. It is not my least favorite Star Trek movie of all time. Uh, there, are, there are a couple others that actually fall, fall below that, but they don't fall within our realm to, um, to, to criticize that, that belongs to another show. So I will say that there are, there are a couple others that, that, don't, that don't make the mark for, for other reasons. In Star Trek V, I enjoy more. Okay. All right, so it's been a, a very interesting time, I think, reflecting on The Final Frontier. I've enjoyed it, Jeff, very much. I think that um, 
especially when we come at it, we're not completely aligned, but we both see a lot of the same things is, is great. But it's not the only topic we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, The Ready Room. 50 years, there's been something to carry it this far. In that yeah. vein of, hey, it's our, it's our generation or our era's mythic heroes that we can look up to. Do we dare put that in something that's lasted as long as, you know, literary-wise Shakespeare and some of the other myths of, of, you know, the ancients that have found a purpose and a use that still speak to people? The Orb. The wonderful thing about Zial is she just has it in spades. You know, I mean, she's been mistreated her entire life by her parents and yet has turned out to be this beautiful, amazing person. Part of that's probably Kira taking care of her for so long now. Yeah. Women at Warp. Admiral Alan Alda came to visit Captain Coretta Scott King. <laughs> Meanwhile, morale officer Beyonce is uh, trying to deal with her new Weasley sweater. And <laughs> they're all partying at the first contact party. Melodic Treks. This score is one of my favorites for Star Trek The Next Generation and is similar in many ways to a film score that I love. The episode is Data Lore, and the film score that I will compare this to is Alien by Jerry Goldsmith. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So, Jeff, Mr. Ataz, please let all of our listeners know how they can access all avenues to Trek FM and how to find Trek FM. Well, you can find us on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can always stream or download the MP3 file from our website at trek.fm and grab the RSS link there as well. If you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. That makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes, and it helps us to increase our visibility for new listeners. Thank you, Jeff. And another big piece of of what we um, communicate to our listeners all the time is the benefits of being a patron through the Patreon.com network. So with Patreon.com, if you you go on to Patreon.com slash TrekFM, this is the the key method that that TrekFM employs uh, to solicit donors uh, from our listeners. This is 100% 100% donor-fed. Uh, there's no commercials on our show whatsoever. And we love bringing you ad-free podcasting. And, of course, it's a very large and very expensive network to run. So for anyone that um, can afford to, we really appreciate your donations. And there's certain levels of, of perks that you get when you donate to Patreon. At $15 a month, you can be part of the Patrons Roundtable. Now, this is hosted by Will Wynn and Aaron Harvey. I think they they alternate uh, throughout the month. And this gives every one of our listeners out there that pay this amount the opportunity to podcast. And we love the Patrons Roundtable, especially me, because that's how I got on this network, was on the very first one in in June of last year. So it's been a year, Jeff. Uh, It was was the first time I ever met you and Norm, and uh, look what's happened a year later. Here we are. It's amazing. Uh, Both of you guys were well-situated hosts. And um, anyway, so it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a great opportunity to get on the air, see how podcasting works, get your opinions out there, and then listen to yourselves. It's, it's a lot of fun. And then at the $25 level, we, um, 
you, you get to choose whatever show you would like to be associate producer of, and you get associate producer credits on that show. So if you can, please sign up with Patreon. That's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Trek FM and support us any way you can. Your contributions are really, really appreciated. And all of us on Standard Orbit make large contributions through Patreon to this network. So we do practice what we preach. So, Jeff, would you like to reach out to our associate producers today? Uh, sure. Uh, and, in fact, we have a new patron to the show. Uh, our very own art director, Aaron Harvey, has chosen to support Standard Orbit at the associate producer level, and we can't thank him enough for doing so. As a matter of fact, he's actually been an associate producer for a short time now, and we unfortunately overlooked his contribution to the show in the last few weeks. But we are glad that he is with us, and we're honored to have his support. And thank you always to our associate producers uh, for Standard Orbit, Renee Roberts, Richard Rutledge, and now Aaron Harvey. Uh, thank you so much for all of your support for both Standard Orbit and Trek FM through Patreon. And you can find Renee on Twitter at MRES underscore 1701, Richard at RUT8972, and it's what a, th- and, uh, what a thrill it is. Uh, and Aaron Harvey is also a host of Saturday Morning Treks, and uh, uh, he can be found uh, on the on the roundtables as you mentioned earlier. Uh, and it's it's a great thrill to have him aboard. So thank you, Aaron. Yeah, it's a it's a big deal. Both Renee and Richard have been with the show throughout. Uh, they've been steadfast and 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 rock rock uh, uh, solid in their support for us. But when I saw that Aaron Harvey had signed up to join this, I took that very personally and, and was really honored by it because this guy, he is Trek FM. Uh, he's the, 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 the network's art designer, Saturday morning Trek, and he's always on the Babel conference. He's always got uh, a lot of opinions. He's one of those guys that uh, at times I'm just sitting there going, oh, that's brilliant. At other times I'm going, oh my God, what did he just write? <laughs> and he's he's a lot of fun to interact with on the Babel conference. Uh, you just you just you just love Aaron. He, he just adds so much to the network. So I just I just wanted to add my two cents and and thank Renee and Richard and and Aaron for joining of us. It's it's a great honor for for Standard Orbit to have the three of you as our associate producers. And if you um if if there's another way too, you can support uh, Trek FM a little bit. If you uh, are interested, you can find. GreatTrek.fm themed merchandise at redbubble.com. Speaking of the aforementioned Aaron, uh, he he has designed some phenomenal shirts. Uh, I have a few, and I have mailed a few to different um, uh, uh, people out there that have been able to stump Mr. Atos. And, and it's 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 a wonderful way to, to, to help us go forward with us. Uh, to contact us, if you would like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trek.fm slash contact and look at the sidebar on the show page. Or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at trek.fm. Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And as I mentioned before about uh, Aaron being on the Babel conference, that is where you can find me. I uh, don't have any social media accounts, and that's where I hang is in the Babel conference. If you type the Babel conference, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field under Facebook, or go to our website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. So, Jeff, where can we find you? 
Well, if you don't have access to an Atavacron or any other method of time travel, including uh, DeLoreans or uh, Type 40 TARDISes, you can always find me on the Babel Conference on Facebook. I'm the co-host here on the network for both Standard Orbit and Warp 5, uh, Trek FM's dedicated Enterprise show. I'm also on Twitter, at Harlander, and I'm a supporter of the network through Patreon. You can also check out my website. It's been called The Grand Unified Theory of Star Trek, and that's at trekopedia.com, and my independent comic books at bandwithcomics.com, or search on Facebook for Bandwidth Comics. Yeah, and if you'd like to get in touch with Norm, I, I, I didn't mention at the top of the show. Sorry about that, Commodore. Uh, Norm's been real busy with work. He's been traveling, trying to earn the big bucks so that he can up his donation to Patreon because that's the kind of guy he is. Uh, he couldn't join us this week, so uh, but we don't want to uh, neglect letting you, you're letting the fans know how you can get in touch with Norm because you'll always find him on the Babel conference too. But um, you can you can get him through uh, Twitter at at Starfighter one seven zero one or in the Babel conference, like I said. So thanks everyone for listening, and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit. <laughs>